Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Second Act Actors. I'm your host, Dr. Janet McMorty, and I was and, oh, still very much am a medical doctor simultaneously trying to pursue a career in acting. My guest this week is Kristen Duffy. Kristen was a fashion designer turned actor and podcast host and creative content producer. She does everything. She has an incredible podcast that I highly recommend you check out, where she chats to people who have also made career changes later on in their lives into a second act. Not necessarily into acting, but more into anything. Link in the show notes below for you to take a listen. It is a phenomenal podcast. Highly, highly recommend you check it out. Kristen has a really interesting life story where she talks about her time in New York, as well as her time in London acting, and also her career as a triathlon coach, and how that has influenced not only her acting career, but her creative life now. Please enjoy this incredible episode with the incredible Kristen Duffy. Speaking of life, tell me about yours. Tell me your story. So, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> um, yeah, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was a cold and rainy day. <laughs> exactly. yeah. It was a Monday, that I know. Um, no, it was, uh, I'm the oldest of six kids, which for some reason always feels like an important detail in my life, because I think it's shaped a lot of who I am, having five younger brothers and sisters. But... Um, yeah, originally studied fashion design at the University of Cincinnati. Sort of convoluted how I got to that, but it's not important. That's what I ended up deciding to do. And I was really lucky that I went to a school that had this, um, it was called the co-op program, but I got the chance to intern sort of every other quarter. I'd go to school a quarter, intern a quarter. And I loved that because it gave me the opportunity to have a lot of experience. But I don't know. I feel like I should say it just because it's so important to kind of what happened later. But from the very beginning, I loved the school part. I wasn't so sure about the work part. So, you know, I knew that I wasn't so sure about it. But every time I went back to school, I was like, I love what I'm doing. This is amazing. And so I graduated fashion design. Um, because of all those internships, got a few job offers. And one of them was at Old Navy in New York, which um, is a division of Gap. It had a really, they had a really good, you know, relocation and offer for me. And it was really exciting straight out of school to be able to do it. So I convinced same ex um, that we should move to New York. And yeah, he got a job there. We went to New York and I don't know, just had a really interesting experience living in New York. I loved it. Thought I would always be a New Yorker. Uh, became a triathlete in New York, which is also a huge part of my life now. So there was so many things that happened in New York that kind of, I don't know, led to where I am now, but which is as an actor and producer and podcaster in London. <laughs> were you growing up with, you know, that many siblings? Were you were you the leader of those siblings? Like, was that kind of a formative thing for you as the oldest? That's a good question. I would say I was the most conscientious 
That's how I'm going to put it because I have, there's four girls and two boys. And I have to say like, we all have fairly strong personalities. Like the sister after me is pretty laid back, but she still has, I don't know. She's pretty laid back. The next sister is like a tornado. I mean, she is so hard headed. So, I mean, I don't know. There were times growing up, I was scared of her. So to say I was her leader, she might disagree. But um, I would say that I was the one, because I think I had a lot of pressure from my dad being the oldest, that I was the one who was always worried about, I have to have good grades. And I played the violin and, you know, all these things that were, I wouldn't say, I would say I was not a nerd. I wasn't a cool kid, but like a lot of the stuff I did was really nerdy. Were you creative yes. growing up? Like, was that kind of pushed you into fashion design? Yeah, yeah I definitely was creative. And, I, and the the thing is, is I was never an art student and I never really sewed. I say I wasn't an art student. I loved art in elementary school. But um, once I went to high school, I had kind of a weird, I, I was very easily swayed because I had an art teacher that I didn't really like. So I kind of pursued it more through uh, music and acting and things like that. I was in the uh, ensemble choir. Uh, I liked to write. Uh, so, you know, it was like I was always doing something creative. And initially, um, there was a school in Cincinnati, which was very well known for being a creative and performing arts school. So I kind of always assumed I'd go there because I would played the violin from the time I was two. I loved to sing. I loved to do all these things. And then I ended up getting a good score on a college preparatory kind of test that said I could go to this other school. And I did that. It, it really changed my life for many, many years. But the weird thing is, even though I was in this quote unquote academic school, I was constantly doing all the creative things. So I was in the school musicals. I was in the orchestra. I was, you know, writing for the newspaper. So it, so yeah, even though, yeah, even though I made this choice to kind of not pursue creativity at age 11 or whatever I was, I definitely was always looking for the most creative thing I could do. Mm-hmm. And then fashion design, I think, and I am, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think fashion design, it's got to be, a, it's kind of like arc, being an architect, right? You've got a bit of, we got a lot of creativity involved in that, a lot, but there's a kind of sciencey math to it, I would think as well, too right? Well, more academic. I don't know. It's interesting you say that partially because my ex is an architect. (laughs) So I had a very close (laughs) relationship with what architecture was, I think. Um, Also, because I um, considered architecture before I went into fashion. And looking back on it, it, Mm -hmm. there's kind of two sides to my brain. One side laughs because I looked at what he did. And I was like, I would not have wanted to do that. I would not have been good at it. But I do think that I, though I was very quick to say I'm creative, I also do have a really analytical side. So I was never the person that was like the most wildly creative. I think of myself more as creative, but with some logic. Well, not that creative people don't have logic. That's so not fair to say. But there was sort of a left brain, right brain competition going on. So I would say that fashion isn't necessarily like that. I mean, pattern making and things like that are. So I was really good at that part of it because I really did like sort of the, and I loved sort of the tailoring aspect, which was really about precision. 
But I think it was more because of who I was, because there were people that were wildly creative and could not figure out how to measure seam allowance on a pattern, you know? So it was, there was a broad range, I think, of types that came into fashion. Yeah. And I, what brought in your love of triathlons? Because I'm going to do just a bit of an aside. So my work is in sports medicine. So I meet a ton of triathletes, and they are an interesting breed of human, very logical brained and data driven for the love of the data. Yeah. How did you get into something like that? I am so not that triathlete, and I'm actually a triathlon coach now, and I'm trying to get my head around. Um, I work with groups. I work with groups now, but I'm working toward my diploma, which is one to one. And I know that I'll have to deal with a lot of people who are super data driven. And I do now. But so much of me is like about, you know, rate of perceived exertion and things like that, because I like to know what I'm feeling, not know what my numbers on my watch always say. But um, really, it was a, it was 100% a social thing, because I was not sporty at all. And I um, ended up doing a corporate challenge 5k run. I think I did two. No, it was the first one I think I did. Uh, and I just made it around, you know, like I managed to run slash walk or jog. I don't even remember if I probably had to walk in that first one for sure. Um, Cause I know I had to walk during the training a lot, <laughs> but I made a joke about doing triathlon after that. I was like, now I'm going to do a triathlon. Cause I thought I was so, you know, invincible after one 5k. And I got something in the, in the mail about doing one for the leukemia and lymphoma society. And I thought this is kind of fate or something, you know, who's telling me I should do this. So I ended up going to a meeting and a woman that um, was my step aerobics teacher at the gym was there. And I thought, oh, she really is a tough instructor. So this will be really cool. We can train together and stuff. And as it turned out, she was a patient honoree because she had had leukemia as a child. And then she had actually, as an adult, gotten it again. So I knew her as this super hard gym instructor, but it turns out she was really ill and had five brain tumors at the time. And so I just was like, if she can teach me a really hard gym class, I can find a way in my busy work life and what have you to do a triathlon. And this story has gotten so long, but the this, this long and short of it is I met a great group of people doing it. They became my friends. They became the reason I show, showed up to practice, um, to train, and they became my best friends in New York. And so even when they stopped doing triathlon, because quite a few of them, you know, they didn't want to continue after a certain point. Uh, we, we most, most of us ended up doing Ironman and like longer distances together, but you know, a lot of people that was kind of like, that's what I wanted to do once. But for me, it became a huge part of my life. And the fact that it provided all these friends in New York just kind of made it obvious that it was something I should do once I got to London as well. It's sometimes so hard though, because if there's a little delay too, it's sort of like, Yes. And it's funny because on Friday I talked to another actress who's in the UK. So I'm just going to wait till the, I'll edit this. I'll wait till they're done. Um, who's in the UK as well too. And we had that same delay and we're, it, it takes that bit of time to just get used to it, to be like, nope, just let it go over the pond and come back. <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. That's such a good way to describe it because it's so frustrating because it's just like slightly unnatural to be like, I know you're finished talking, but I haven't heard everything you've said yet. Okay. Like are, are are you are you frozen? No, oh no, it's just going to space and then back. Yeah, <laughs> and like we were saying at the beginning, like with technology, it's actually amazing that I can have this conversation with you right now. I mean, to be doing this, so we're complaining about like a millisecond, but there is something so unnatural that you just kind of have to be like, "Yep, I'm going to get used to it. It's fine. They can hear me. Just be patient." Yeah. It's all good. Yeah, it's so true. I think there was a, I can't remember who, I think it was George Carlin, the comedian, Mm -hmm. made some joke about that, about people getting angry about text messages taking so long. He's like, they're going to space and back. Wait a minute. Well, yeah, I remember just being so annoyed when internet was still fairly young and it would take a while to load. And it was Mm -hmm. like, and now I get impatient if it takes like one second for something. And I'm just like... It's all amazing. Like this yeah. all has happened in pretty much in my lifetime. So why am I so yeah. frustrated? <laughs> I know. I know. It is. It's really crazy. Okay. I think they're I think they're gone. Yeah. Well, I think going back to triathlons, I think I agree with you about community for something like that, right? Like especially when you're in a new city, I find one of the best places to make or find a community of people is either in sports or the arts, right? Because you've yeah. got all these like-minded people doing doing things together. And yeah, and, but I think you kind of got, and I know I'm generalizing and I know you know this, but like you got the sports mindset people, the triathlon mindset people, and then you've got like the creatives. Uh, you know, I know in my community, I've got my like cycling friends and my running friends, and then I've got my theater friends and oh, they could not be more different. And I'm like this little trying to be in the middle between the two. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things. It's sort of like never the two shall meet. And yet somehow I've tried to be like, I'm yeah. both. But most of the people I know, because here um, I started by joining a running club that also had a triathlon branch and, you know, made friends that way a bit, but then started my own triathlon club. And it's really interesting because there really aren't very many kind of quote unquote artsy people. But then, of course, I have my quote unquote artsy friends as well. So it's such it is such a different community. It's really interesting. And yeah, how I've sort of found myself straddling the two. I don't know. (laughs) I I want to hear all about your acting career, but I got to ask, how was your first triathlon? Obviously, you got addicted. Yeah. God, it's been so long. I can't even remember. Um, it was good. It was good because it was with that group of people. Like we all kind of went to the first one together. Uh, it was, you know, to make it so that people want to fundraise a lot of money. They made it a really exciting race. It was this huge race in Florida. We traveled down together, you know, and I think I always equate triathlon to having a baby. I haven't had a baby myself, (laughs) but I do know that people that have had children always say, Uh, you kind of forget the pain. That's why you end up having more than one. That's why we've, you know, continued as a human race. (laughs) And I honestly think once you've done it, the next, you know, you're kind of like, oh, that really hurt. Oh, how can I do that again? How can I do that faster? Which one's the next one? And for me, for a long time, it was about going, going, I didn't think I was going to go longer and longer. I was like, I'm just going to keep trying to get faster. But my friends started going longer 
And I didn't want to get left behind. So I kind of started doing it and discovered these, you know, longer races, like up to an iron distance were really where my passion kind of was for a long time. So yeah, I guess I did get addicted, but I certainly didn't expect to. And I certainly forget how much it hurts until I'm doing it again. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's why everyone doesn't do this. (laughs) How did you get into coaching? So when I moved here, so part of the whole thing was I considered coaching before I moved here. I considered acting before I moved here. There were all these things I wanted to try, which was part of the adventure of coming to London was it gives me kind of a break to say, can I take some classes? What do I want to do? And I knew the triathlon coaching thing was kind of there. Should I, should I try it? Um, at that point, I knew that I had come from a place where I was like, I'm not a runner. I'm not an athlete. And yet I'd become, you know, multiple Ironman athlete, triathlete. So I thought I want to give this to someone else, give this to other people, especially women. But, you know, it's not really turned out that way. It's turned out that I like to coach everyone. But I saw, I just saw something that said the, um, the Brent council, which is one of the areas of London was looking to start a tri club. And, uh, British triathlon was like, you know, we need somebody to start a club there. We, we don't have any clubs in that council yet. And for me, I was like, oh, this is kind of a two in one. And so as part of it, I was able to do my coaching level one and two diplomas. So it just or level one and two coaching degrees, not really degrees. I'm calling it a degree because the diploma is what I'm working on now. But um, yeah, it, it, it just was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And it wasn't that far from where I was living. And yeah, next thing you know, it was like, oh, I have my, I say my own. It's so not my own anymore because I have an amazing group of people. There's like a committee and I'm just the coach and, you know, I just spout my ideas all the time and they just, okay, okay, you know, and then do what, you know, they want to do and should do. But yeah, it just was kind of another sort of fate thing in a way. And so you come to England after being in New York, working as a fashion designer How did you transition into acting? How did that start? So it was something I had done when I was younger. I had tried to audition for a couple things in New York, but you know, even like the most Amdram kind of thing in New York is really professional actors who just aren't getting work or want something else to do. Or So I never really got anything in New York and it was kind of discouraging, but I knew somewhere that in me that I was like, I want to do this. So... When I moved here, it was definitely part of the plan to kind of at least take some courses. And I wasn't sure, but I was like, at least if I take some short courses, I can figure it out. And I did take some short courses and really liked what I was doing. And one of the places I had taken some of the shorter courses had a two-year program. And it was full-time, you know, most drama school here is three years and, or you can get like a master's degree, but I wasn't really in the place that I felt like I was ready to do three years since it was definitely a second career. But I felt like one year, cause I got into one school that they were like, you know, it was a really well-known school, but it was one year. And I thought, I'm just not sure if I can learn quite as much as I, f- I feel like I need a little bit more. So I did the two years and yeah, then, you know, started looking for agents and doing auditions and all that kind of stuff. 
is there anything that you've noticed that's been either helpful or I don't want to say hindrance because that sounds so negative, but like, or anything that you've pulled from your career as a fashion designer and even your triathlete experience and coaching that you've now been using in your acting career? Hmm. I would say how do I want to think about that? I guess I would probably say more triathlon in a sense that uh, I've done so many longer distance things. And with this acting thing, especially as a second career, I feel like, you know, the old adage of like, it's a marathon, not a sprint kind of thing. So I think the kind of determination that got me through triathlon when I shouldn't have been able to do it. I mean, I say I shouldn't have been able to do it. It wasn't ever my thing, but I developed a lot of mental stamina and mental strength that I think has kind of led me to not, I want to say not totally give up because I've definitely done some things to try to balance the fact that acting is so hard and that acting, getting acting jobs is just not a consistent thing most of the time. But yeah, I would say that it was probably more of that sort of mental strength because there is so much rejection. It's so easy to get discouraged. And it's the same when you're doing a race and, you know, you know that you have half the race to go and how am I going to pick up my legs? And so I would say it was probably things like that that really have kind of translated. Yeah, and I think you come from a bit of a unique background because of the podcast that you have as well too um you know the second chapter podcast that you host talking and celebrating women like yourself who've made a change in their career i mean not necessarily acting but just big career shifts and big career changes what have you learned through i guess chatting with people in that podcast but also like through kind of your life living somebody who's now in the a second act like any any words of wisdom <laughs> through these experiences i guess when it comes to acting specifically uh i would say when i when i auditioned for the drama school i ended up going to they said to me something about you can't want to do this for fame and you can't want to do this for you know it has to be that you want to act and you know they they made it like it's hard And for me, because I'd always been someone who, if I wanted something, I just felt like I had to work hard at it. And it it wasn't that things came easy, but it was that if I wanted something, I could work hard and become good at it. And acting's not like that. It is, you know, the harder you try to be perfect, the less human you are. So you're not being a good actor anymore. And I could say, you know, I'm going to work so hard at learning a monologue or working on accents and all of that's great, but that's not going to get me acting work. That's not going to make me a better actor even most of the time. I mean, it'll, it'll help enhance what I'm doing, but I feel like I, I didn't believe it until I lived it. And now so much of what I'm doing supports the fact that I like acting and that I'm an actor, but one of the things I'm so passionate about now is also supporting other women who have made these career shifts or who are doing creative pursuits after 35. So I have a company that, you know, we, this Slackline Productions, which is all about um, 
helping female playwrights and um, and writers and directors and telling the stories of women 35 plus. And as you mentioned, the second chapter podcast is about any kind of careers that women have shifted to after 35. And I think some of the, you know, those mostly take up more time than the actual acting because A, I love doing them. I love telling stories. So whether it's as an actor, as a producer, as a podcaster, I just want to tell these stories. And if I can't get hired for roles, then I can tell them in other ways. I don't even know if that was a good answer to your question. It was so all over the place. But I really am into the idea that we can do more than one thing or more than two things or more than five things in our lives. I just want to do everything. Yeah. And I don't know where that mindset came from that you have to, that you just get to pick one thing. Because I remember not being told that per se, because I mean, I had, I grew up with parents who had had kind of multiple career paths as well. But I had in my mind for some stupid reason that I was going to be a doctor and I became a doctor and then the doctor I shall be. Yes. (laughs) It's not like... I don't know where that came from. It's such baloney. And there's, and it, it almost, I think, was what contributed to the burnout piece of feeling like you're kind of trapped in the one career and the one career only. I don't know. Did it come for you? Did you ever have that experience? I weirdly had, my dad was kind of like doing the American dream thing where, you know, he'd started at a company when he was pretty young, worked his way up, ended up as one of the co-owners of the company, you know, running the show. But then he also had the moment where the company didn't work anymore and he found himself sort of jobless and at, you know, 50, in his 50s, I guess. So part of me, I think, maybe was a little bit scared of the idea that if I didn't follow this dream through one path, um... I'd find myself, you know, failing somehow. But also I think that in somewhere in the back of my mind, I was like, my dad did everything right and it still didn't work. So I think, yeah, I'm kind of saying to myself, I could have continued the same job. I mean, I was doing a steady rise in corporate fashion design. You know, I wasn't like doing crazy runway shows. I was working a corporate job where I kind of did what I said. I did well, I worked hard. Next step, did well, worked hard, next step. And I could have continued with that, but I just felt like there was something else. But I think, like you said, you know, there's this misconception we have to do this same thing or there's there's kind of this standard of it. But I think one of the things is that training is so expensive. Education is so expensive, um, especially in the States. But like even here um, now, it's gotten so much, you know, what used to be free or very inexpensive education has gotten so much more expensive. So I think for somebody like you, you know, I've trained as a doctor and now I want to do something else. You know, you spend all that time, you spend all that money, you spend all that. And then you think, how can I, how can I even tell people that I'm going to do something else? And something like acting seems like, oh, well, everybody wants to do that. Good luck. Yeah, I think absolutely. I've had that conversation with with lots of people, not just doctors, but I remember saying it to someone about you, the time piece for sure, obviously monetary expenses, insane for training, but the time, right? Like here I am in my late thirties, having spent the glory years of my life, my twenties <laughs> and most of my thirties in school, 
and libraries, you know, and now I'm doing the thing that I love, that I loved learning about, and it's not living up to what I wanted. Yeah. And I think you said something that like I loved about, about loving the school, but not loving the job. That is, that is me, right? I was like, yep, that's totally what it was. I loved everything about school. Yeah. Everything. That's why I stayed in school till I was 35. (laughs) Come on. But the job, yeah, the job part about it. I wish I could be a professional student. I totally agree. Maybe that's what it is. I said that all the time. I said that all the time. And I think the thing with acting so often, another cliche, but so many people say, don't act unless it's the only thing you can do or the only thing you want to do because it's a challenging career because there's so many people, it's oversaturated, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I think to me, that's the only thing I see short of being a professional student, maybe where I can kind of do everything. I mean, I haven't gotten all the roles yet, but I'm working on producing as well. So why couldn't I? I mean, I could produce whatever I wanted, really. But I love the idea of being an astronaut. And, you know, to act, you don't get to become an astronaut, but you do your research. So you kind of know what it's all about. You kind of get the experience of feeling that for a minute. I probably am not going to go back to school to be a doctor. But if I played a doctor, you know, I would do my research. I would, I would experience that for a short period of time. And I feel like for somebody like me, and maybe you feel the same way, but I love the idea of just for a short moment of time, getting to try so many different things. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think that is what makes, yeah, acting, what makes acting so exciting, but also makes me as someone who's had interests and flitted around through different things and made me feel a bit guilty about being not that like gritty person who's stuck with one thing. No, no, I like to learn about stuff. And that makes me that makes me feel a bit feel a bit better about all of that, you know? <laughs> There's so many things I enjoy. I don't know how in God's name I would make a career out of any of this. But I just like to learn about it. Yeah. And that's so interesting. You say like acting is one of those places where that is, I have no desire. This is a funny aside. I love movie scores, like the scores of films. I love how they're made. I've watched every documentary about Hans Zimmer on the planet. There's no way that that knowledge is ever going to be useful for me in a career unless I, I'm on Jeopardy. I was going to say, but if I am the Jeopardy. most excited when I can sit and watch. Like, right? Yeah. Like, if I could, like, yesterday I sat and I watched how he did the Dune soundtrack for like an hour. I'm like, this is just pure joy learning how this happens. Yes. I love it. But also, I learning feel like stuff. you sound like me too, in the sense that I'm always thinking, like, how do I make this part of my job? And I've tried to s- just shove everything mm. as in- in- into part of my work life. And then I remember I'm allowed to have hobbies as well. <laughs> Sometimes it's really hard to do that, especially as somebody who's freelancing, always thinking, like, how do I get my next paycheck? What am I going to do? But Every once in a while, it's nice just to say, you know what, this is just something I have an interest in. Because I think somebody who works in a bank probably has hobbies outside of the bank. You know what I mean? So just because you're an actor or because you have this, you know, creative sponge kind of thing, you can actually do things for just the joy 
Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do when we are so focused on the monetization of everything. And for a good reason. I mean, that's where a lot of society places value. Yes. But yeah, I think I, I've made this I made this analogy several times already. So I'm going to do it again. I love to bake. If I put money on, like, if I start selling the things that I'm baking, I'm not going to like it as much. Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of thought the same about baking, actually, because I really do like it. I love to cook in general, (laughs) but I do kind of think if I had to do it every Mm -hmm. day for a lot of people and people were sending things back because they didn't think it was warm enough or they didn't like it or the joy would be gone. Yeah. The joy would be gone. Yeah. Yeah. Has there been anything that's has there been anything that surprised you about the acting business, the business of acting or the industry? I think kind of like what I said before about um, being told how hard it was. And I just didn't think that would apply to me, which sounds so, it sounds terrible. I don't like how it sounds. But I just refuse to believe. And I know there's a lot of people that go into it like that. Like, oh, yeah, it's been hard for everybody else, but I refuse to believe it. And because it was a second career thing, the whole invisibility of women that, you know, oh, is that still true? And, oh, there's things on Netflix now that, you know, so-and-so's in and she's a woman over 40 or whatever. But really, there still is it is my soapbox and I will climb on it and I probably will die on it. (laughs) But I do believe, and it has surprised me how much that analogy or how much the, the cliche or whatever we want to call it about women becoming visible is because I see, I work. (laughs) One of the other things I do, my agency now is a co-op agency, which means I also act as an agent to the other actors in the agency and vice versa. So I see the commercial castings that come out and how many of them, once you reach a certain age, it's like you go from being a mom and then suddenly you're slightly too old looking to be a mom. So you're like doing incontinence pads or something. And I'm like, (laughs) and the cliches of, you know, she's pretty, but not too pretty, or she's pretty, but still looks like she could get her shoes muddy. And I'm just like, I can't believe this still exists. I can't believe this is still how we describe women. And the men aren't like that. I mean, of course, there's some that like they want like a model guy and they say that he's very chiseled or whatever the words we use for men are. But it's so much more standard for women. And I think I didn't want to believe that, but it has surprised me. I have been told, and this is going to be, I'm so curious of your answer because of where you've lived. I have been told and about aging in Hollywood, aging in, in the entertainment industry. As women in North America, we are not allowed to age in this industry. And, but in the UK, it's a bit more celebrated. You can, you see a lot more naturally aging women in the UK on the BBC and stuff like that, as opposed to in North America, your classic kind of Hollywood sitcom. True or false? What do you think? I would say true because people do tend to look a little more 
natural, I would say. I am surprised when I come home and I turn on the TV and like daytime television or, you know, the the talk shows and things, how plastic and how painfully thin people look. Like it does surprise me a bit. So I'm just like, Mm. I want to say it's false, but then I'm like, yeah, it is way worse when I go home to the States. Um, That said, I feel like I can still sort of count on one or two hands <laughs> how many older women I'm seeing in things. And, you know, it's sort of like the Meryl Streep thing where everybody's like, yeah, but Meryl Streep's working all the time. Well, Meryl <laughs> Streep is Meryl frickin' Streep. You know what I mean? So, yes, <laughs> I see someone who, like Olivia Coleman, who by no means, uh, she's sort of the age range I'm talking about. Like she's in her 40s, late 40s maybe. And, you know, hasn't become quite a grandmother figure yet, but isn't still like a young mom. So she's working great, but she's Olivia Coleman. She's not like, you know, a huge range of men that you can name in the same age range who are consistently working. So yes, I think it's a bit more natural. And I think you're maybe allowed to age a little bit more, but I also think depends on who you are. And I think it depends on timeline because things that happen in Hollywood start to move over. So I do see people that are either English that ended up in Hollywood or the trends here starting to take on some of the same not so great things. Hmm. Yeah. And you kind of of want the flip opposite, obviously, right? Like I think I think there also is a bit of a stereotype about women with a British accent, right? I think you can, there's a a maturity that comes from that British accent that I think you can play a lot of different roles. And this is me talking as a doctor as well. I remember when I was in medical school, wishing I was an old British man, because if I was an old British man, maybe people would take me seriously in the medical industry. Oh, that's wild. And I kind of wonder about the same thing. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder if it's the same thing, right? You know, I was thinking, again, as I'm in, like, the age category where I am I am mom right now. Everything I go for is mom, 40s, mom, 40s. When you kind of get into that bridging category before I turn into grandma. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd be taken more seriously if I had a delightful British accent. (laughs) Well, I think that goes into a couple stereotypes because one is there is so there are just a couple. Just a few. (laughs) There are so many British accents. So when you're here, uh, if you say like RP, 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 yeah, but that's what Americans think of because we hear either like a really Kent Cockney. Or uh, I say Americans, North Americans, we hear really Ken Cockney or we hear very, you know, proper British, you know, Downton Abbey kind of thing. (laughs) And yeah, so there's that. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like going back to some of the surprises, I think I went into drama school feeling pretty confident. I think a lot of us do this. You go into drama school feeling confident and they kind of tear you down. I don't know why, because you have to get down to your raw core self to be an actor apparently but in addition to the normal drama school tearing me down to my core kind of thing I started apologizing for being an older actor I started apologizing for being American which I didn't know I mean I don't think 
I, I don't know. There just was something that like, oh, but I have to be able to do an RP if I'm going to be, you know, it was like, you need a unique selling point, but you also aren't allowed to be American. And it was kind of like, okay. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Huh. Maybe, maybe sometimes I did feel like if I could just speak with more of an RP accent or, and then other times I'm like, yeah, I've got put up with that commercial because I was American. So what's right? Who knows? Who knows? And I think there comes a time, and I think this honestly can only come with great wiseness and maturity as we age, where you just don't care anymore. You're like, this is who I am. This is what I sound like. Yep, I've got a hard R in my Canadian accent because of where I grew up. If you don't like it, too bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? I, I mean, I don't know. When I hear people that are American here, that if you've lived here a long time, because I know some of my words sometimes come out in a way that's not really American anymore. And sometimes I sound super American, especially if I'm talking Mm. to somebody with a similar accent. But I think, you know, when people have been here a short period of time and start trying to put on an English accent, it drives me crazy. So things like that, I'm just like, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to do it. Oh, you've been here 11 years? Well, you haven't lost your accent. Well, you know what? (laughs) I had it for a hell of a long time before I came here. So... Yeah. Yeah. I am who I am. Is there anything? You are who you are, right? I think we just, we apologize too much for being who we are. I think. Exactly. It's a, yeah, we do. And being here, everybody apologizes even more. Is there anything more. you're, oh, I'm Canadian. It is our part of our vernacular. Sorry. And then talk, <laughs> not just Canadian, but like. Yeah, so, so, sorry. Wait, if I do my general American, sorry. Yeah, sorry, I was like doing sorry. your sorry. And you're like, sorry. And then add, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. But then add on like the fact that I'm a female where it's just, I feel like I, again, I, I know that's a very gendered stereotype, but it's true, right? You're apologizing all the time. Oh, sorry. Stupid question. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Does this make sense? <laughs> sorry. Yeah. On a happier note, is there anything that you are looking forward to coming up this this year? Oh my gosh, that should be on a happier note, but I've had such a weird dry spell all of a sudden. Like, I wish I could say, oh, I'm looking yeah. forward to I've got this amazing, but you know what? I'm going to put it out to the universe. Something interesting is about to happen. And I can tell because I've never had quite this long of a period of time, both from my own I don't know. If, if nothing's happening, I usually make something happen. And I've just been kind of lying low because mm-hmm. I'm trying to make some big decisions. You know, what's next? What's my big project? What am I going to do? And I'm just convinced something really interesting is going to happen. I love doing the second chapter. It is one of my favorite things in the world. So I'm just finishing up season five. I'm about to start season six. I'm going to keep going with that. And I'm waiting for this moment that I know either divine inspiration is going to strike and I'm going to come up with something amazing or somebody is going to finally bring to me the thing that I've been waiting for. I love it. I think manifestation, when I first heard about it, I was like, that sounds like a load of hoo-ha. But it really and truly does work. Yeah, because when I, I mean... I don't want to be like stars in my eyes optimistic because, you know, I've lived too long to really 
just say, oh, something is literally going to be handed to me. But I know that I've been lying, uh, laying down the foundation, however, whatever the right English... <laughs> right grammar for that is I've been putting down a strong foundation I've been working my ass off I know that I've been trying to make some big decisions so I know that it's going to happen because a mix of all the work that I've done and you know putting it out there as well because if I don't know it or if I haven't made it clear to myself yeah I think I need to make it clear to myself to make it clear to the universe if you will to manifest it to happen Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any final words of advice for anyone who's considering a career shift? I think that it is a challenge. I mean, I'm not, I haven't put it, you know, that it's all wine and roses or, you know, I can't, why can't I think of any of the, you know, cliched stereotype word uh, expressions? It's just, it's not a bed of roses, put it that way. But I do think, I mean, I've, I'm building like an entire career around the idea that I think people can make career changes. You know, I've got this podcast. I've got this, um, you know, early career later in life production company. So I would say it's not worth being unhappy doing what, if you want to do something different, eventually it's going to work out. Just, you know, I, you go for it. I, the, people have said to me, there's a, where there's a will, there's a way. And I'm just like, oh, really? That's not like, but, but there, there is just go for it because I would rather be as worried as I am half the time about money, not sure where my next job's going to come from. Sometimes all the things I just said about, you know, having a dry spell and needing to figure out my next moves. But I'd rather be doing that on my own terms than stuck in a job that I'm just not sure about. So yeah, I would say go for it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and thank you, Kristen, for being my guest this week. As I said in the intro, Kristen has a fantastic podcast. If you're a podcasty person like me, definitely check it out. The link is in the show notes below. Definitely check out her incredible guests who have all made big career and life changes into their second acts, like a lot of us have. I think we can all relate. Second Act Actors is produced and edited by me, Janet McMorty. Theme music by Guillaume. Additional sound editing by David Studio. Additional video editing by Jackie Wadewer. Show notes written by Sarah Hopkinson. I record using Riverside FM. If you're interested in developing an interview-based webcast like mine, I highly recommend this platform. Shoot me an email and I'll direct you to the wonderful folks there. If you or someone you know is interested in being a guest, email me at secondactactors at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. My love language is words of affirmation, so compliments, constructive criticism, and feedback are always welcome and encouraged. Negative Nancys, Judgy McJudgersons, or Debbie Downers, unless you're Rachel Dratch, regarding me or my guests are not welcome. It takes serious courage to share your story with the world, so if you're tempted to negatively comment about someone else's story, please ask your therapist why you're such a garbage person. Save the drama for the stage. On that happy note, I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Second Act Actors. Bye! Bye!